Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hello again, Dr. Dyke Drummond here with the latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast from our home in beautiful Seattle, Washington, and on the web at thehappymd.com. My guest today is Dr. David Graham. I met Dr. Graham at a White Coat Investor Conference just recently, and we had the most fascinating conversation in the speaker's dinner over cocktails about the concept of shame. Shame as it relates to physicians and shame specifically as it relates to burnout. So what we're going to do is have that conversation a little bit more. And what I'll say is that I, as a coach and me as a person who's recovered from burnout and taken on a role, a vocational role, a career role that's different than being a doctor, learning how to deal with things that came out as shameful feelings was a big piece of it. And Dr. Graham, if you could just kick it in, your journey has been a little bit different. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your first person story about how you recognize shame and what you've done with it. Uh, thanks so much, Dyke. And, and man, you are an awesome speaker. I went to your, <laughs> your two-hour um, conference there and, and you just blew the socks off everyone in the room. <laughs> I had no idea, Dyke. I mean, I knew you're a charismatic guy, but man, that was good stuff. And you know, it was practical too. Right. It's like to not voodoo. Yeah. Yeah. It's real practical stuff that like any doctor can do. And I think like the most powerful thing you said is it's just like you ask, you know, what's different? What are you doing different? And it's just small things. It's little nips and tucks here and there that really play in, in getting out of burnout. So all right, we're going to um, throw me under the bus here and talk about shame. Is that, no, is we're, that both we're, under the, we're both we're going, going under the bus. I, I'm dragging know. you under there with me. And, and yeah. let, me just, let me just make a point because this is going to be important about our discussion and important about hopefully anybody's touch with any of the work that I do. I'm a coach. I'm a family doc. I'm just a simple country doctor, Jim, as Bones would say on Star Trek. So it's all about practical actions you can take that will make a difference. We're not here to have an interesting discussion and leave you hanging. So we're going to talk about shame today as an abstract concept. We're going to talk about all the different ways it shows up in the voice in your head. But we're also going to give you some tools. If you're listening to us right now, we're going to give you some tools to recognize and deal with shame in a constructive manner before we're done here today. We won't leave you hanging ever. Love it. Okay, well, here's my my shame story. Is uh, so I I was pretty typical. I I had um, depression in medical school. I had anxiety in residency. I abused substances and in, in fellowship. Um, just your normal doctor story, isn't it? There you go. So, yeah, yeah. So and you know, I I honestly thought I had PTSD from residency and fellowship. You know, like back in the old days when we had the pager, and even having that darn thing next to me in the bedroom just it it wrecked everything it doesn't it doesn't let you sleep it doesn't let you turn off your nervous system so i was like looking at you know ptsd and you know complex ptsd looking at the symptomatology is this what i have and you know eventually i decided to retire early dyke so i retired at the age of 48 not necessarily because i was burnt out but because i was financially independent because i had young kids at home i was retiring to be a stay-at-home dad 
So I had some other things to do. And what knocked my socks off is that when I retired, I didn't feel any better. <laughs> I actually felt worse. Yeah, I actually felt worse. And this voice in my head, this critical self immolating voice that just goes on and on about what a bad person you are and why did you do that and you screwed this up that voice got so bad that i swear i was almost suicidal like, oh my. like you are bad you suck you deserve to die and so i call this a shame storm and it really was it was my rock bottom it, it made me have to figure out what was wrong with me and and it was shame it was i i am a shame based person because of essentially attachment trauma when I was young. Okay, so this is an important point, right? Whenever I'm working with somebody as a coach, and this has been true for me too, it's, it's like what I do is sometimes called wound work, meaning I had a wound, I recovered from my wound, and I help other people with a similar wound recognize and recover from theirs. So shame and inner child work and, and all that kind of recovery from the trauma of being a physician, all that kind of stuff was wrapped in. But what I find is that almost always, if you're feeling these kind of strong emotions and being hijacked by emotions and voices in your head, almost always they will link back to something that happened in your family of origin. Yeah, because well, a lot of times I'll see somebody and they'll say something about a feeling and they'll drift off in our conversation now that we're on Zoom and they'll tell me about this emotion that was really powerful for them that hijacked them. And I'll say, when was the first time you felt that? And typically there's about a 30 second pause and then they'll tell me a story about their mom or their dad. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about this attachment trauma, your parents did the best they knew how. Right. right. It's not like they neglected you. They didn't abuse you. We're not talking about large T trauma where there's right. actual child neglect or child abuse. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about small T trauma. And it really is just a mismatch between your caregiver and what you needed, what you needed to have a secure attachment. And it's so common that it happens. And there's, of course, a spectrum of what can result from it. But it really does come back to kind of these, these, memories that are frozen in your amygdala, which don't have a correlate in your uh, your cortex, right? So they're, they're these frozen emotions that make you have maladaptive responses, even as an adult. And that's the problem is that we should know better, but these little things are triggering us and they're getting us into the, um, you know, norepinephrine, catecholamine, um, glucocorticoid, uh, you know what I'm talking about, cortisol surge, right? So you're in fight or flight, which physiologically shunts, you know, blood away from your cortex. So literally when you get triggered by something, you know, something happens in the hospital or in the clinic, and all of a sudden you can feel your palms start sweating. You can feel the back of your throat tighten a little bit. You can literally feel that catecholamine uh, and the um, cortisol hit you. Like you're useless to have any conversations at all at that point. You can't listen. You can't think. So you've got to kind of recognize these things and don't exacerbate the problem by trying to find a solution when you're when you're triggered essentially yeah at the point where you're triggered exactly yeah and i, I would say that there's tremendous overlap if this was a venn diagram it's a venn diagram that has like eight circles in it and there's tremendous overlap again with ptsd and flashbacks and shame and all that kind of stuff and i i will call shame a superpower shame and guilt a superpower yeah because when you're programmed with this emotion as a young person, 
It is part of the driver to excellence that gives you the grades and the expectation of medical school, even without prompting from your parents. Like, he was always going to be a doctor. There's that kind of overt prompting from your parents. Right. But if you're blowing the top off of the scores in your high school, right, and you would be ashamed, ashamed to show your parents anything other than a 4.0 on your, on your report card, one of the options that's going to open up for you, especially if that same shame and desire to please somebody else makes you somebody who wants to be a helper and a healer, you're highly likely to end up in one of the medical professions. Yeah, let alone perfectionism, right? I mean, how many of us suffer from perfectionism? And then what do we do when we're not perfect? We beat ourselves up. And, and of course, perfect isn't our standards, it's someone else's standards, right? Someone else's shooting in our ear, you should do this or you should do that. If we don't recognize this is not me, this is not who I am, this is someone else, then we're going to beat ourselves up. Well, and I would say that I certainly wasn't capable of recognizing this myself. And so it was an older mentor, a person that I had hired as a coach that said, wow, that, you know, let's dig into that a little bit. <laughs> but again, these inner voices of shame and guilt and things like that and perfectionism typically are internalized when we're really young and they serve as a driver of our success and performance and achievement. And we wake up when we're in our 30s or 40s, recognizing these emotions are no longer serving us, yet they continue to hijack with the same intensity that they did back in medical school. So that's when it's helpful. And, and hopefully we're having this conversation for anybody who's listening. If this sounds familiar, it's super common. There's nothing wrong with you. Your parents did the best they could. All that good stuff. and. Right now, this coping mechanism that was installed when you were small that occasionally will hijack you with an inner voice that's very loud and sweaty palms, that right now is not working as effectively for you as it did when you were a younger person. So the question is, what do you do now that you, you recognize? Like you said, tell us about when you recognized that this was shame that was what you were feeling. Yeah. And, you know, personally, for me, it was really hard to, to figure out what it was because we don't talk about shame, you know, and, and here's the thing, just like burnout, if we don't talk about shame, it's not going to get better. We've got to talk about burnout. We've got to talk about shame. But it was a long, circuitous route because I don't think people actually know what shame is compared to guilt, right? So shame is I am bad. Guilt is I'm a good person, but I did something bad. And that's healthy. Guilt keeps us in alignment with our society, with our group. There's nothing wrong with guilt when it's healthy. But if you are bad despite what you do, then that, that's not healthy. So, and you know, Dyke, what was fascinating about our conversation is you, you said that medical students are like not even in a position that they could recognize shame because of kind of what they're going through and what they have to go through in order to make the next you know, jump through the next hoop. So you're just in such a position where you can't even let off the pedal 5% to look around. You've just got to, you've got to be going so hard that you don't recognize your internal dialogue. Is, is that what you were saying? 
Yeah, I mean, you're, when you're in the transit through the medical education system, which includes med school and residency for sure, but could include two or three or four fellowships, depending on how hooked you are on being a student, right? In those timeframes, you have nothing that you have no degrees of freedom. You have no control. You're meant to follow the course of study in the proper order and get the passing grades and your soul outcome that you're looking for the sole focus of everything you do is making it to the finish line it's a bounded task it has a start a beginning a middle and an end and um, it doesn't matter when you get to the finish line whether you're all in one piece you can be missing you know two toes on your left foot and your right eye doesn't matter because what do they call the person who graduates last from their medical school class? They'll call them a doctor, don't there. they? The answer is doctor, right? So you're going to get there. And what ends up happening is the programming that is overlaid on underlying shame and guilt is the programming of medical education, which is never show weakness. Never do anything to make anybody think that you haven't got what it takes. Because you can't ask for a break or special treatment. It's less now with work hour restrictions than it was back in the day when we had none. Then you were just drummed out. You didn't show up for a shift, you were gone. Now I believe they have wellness programs they're supposed to. ACGME says they're supposed to have wellness programs in every residency program. They're highly variable in the way they're expressed. But it's supposed to be easier now, and I believe it might be. But never show weakness adds to shame and guilt and blame and perfectionism to lead to things like imposter syndrome, which is just a different name for that same interior voice, right? All of this is going on on the inside while you're trying to look like you got it all together. Yeah. And they even call this the hidden agenda sometimes, right? This is just how shame-based medical culture is. The pimping, the hierarchy, so if you didn't have issues with shame going into medicine, you might come out the other side. And, and you know, I would hazard a guess that most substance abuse issues with physicians, most depression and anxiety are linked to shame. Not only that, but so what is very common about physicians is numbing, right? We all numb. It could be working 20 hours a day. It could be an extra glass of wine with dinner. Um, it could be social media. We're all numbing, right? What is it that we're hiding from? I don't know that it's, it's universally something you're hiding from. I think it's a, probably a normal response to the emotional intensity of what we do. Especially, it depends upon your specialty choice, too. You were an infectious disease person in the AIDS epidemic. Does anybody doubt that you were traumatized? <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and you know, that's like being a respiratory therapist in 2021 in an yeah. inner city hospital in New York City. Come on. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're all traumatized after the, the word that shall not be named, right? The, well, the it, pandemic. And, well, and you and you have to have a mechanism to take that trauma and put it in a little box and shut the lid and, and separate yourself from it. Some people use drugs, alcohol, other forms of there are all sorts of different ways to compensate for that. But to be exposed to the bare nerve endings of that kind of trauma and not have some sort of functional mechanism to protect yourself, I think it would be something that you can't survive. Yeah. And that's what you spend a lot of time doing is giving people resources so that they can find a healthier way to numb or healthier strategies to not numb. 
Well, and what we're talking about right now, everything that we've talked about so far is something that I call, and you can think of it as the inner game, the inner game of the spectrum of lives of a doctor, right? So the inner game of being a doctor through medical education and out into practice and, and everything that's going to happen to you, you're going to be traumatized, you're going to be overwhelmed, you're going to be overworked, you're going to be in a situation where you can't ask for help, uh, or at least you have a strong inner drive not to ask. These are all inner game things. And the inner game has gotten a really bad rap when we talk about burnout prevention and stuff like that, because there were a lot of people who suggested that people who were burned out just needed to meditate or contemplate their navel or stuff like that. Just shut up and do some yoga. Right. And it's like th those kinds of things, uh, meditation and mindfulness and yoga, and so incredibly, 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 incredibly important, but they don't stand alone to cure somebody. People are thinking about it all wrong. But as you get older, and probably with the advice of somebody else who can see what you're going through and recognize it as something that's going on in the inner game, a voice that's hijacking you. This is, these are normal voices. You're not psychotic, right? A voice that's hijacking you or, or, you know, a flashback and stuff like that. Being able to think about that at a later time, reflect upon your experience. What was going on? What did I notice? What were the words that were in my head? Where have I ever felt that before? Over time, you can become more skilled at these inner conversations. Yeah, and that, that's exactly what mindfulness is, right? Mindfulness is the ability to recognize the thoughts that are going on in your head and then just say, huh, I wonder why that's th that thought is there. You know, just recognize it, be curious about it, don't reject it, don't stuff it down, but feel it, let it come and go. And, and you know, mindfulness really is the super skill, it's metacognition, right? It's thinking about your thinking. and having the ability to literally control what thoughts you're having is pretty darn beneficial when most of your thoughts are you know beating yourself up i'm going to add a little piece of nuance to that because i don't believe anybody really can control the thoughts that they're having but what you do have is the ability to separate you from those thoughts and pick the ones that you want to support and the ones that you want to release yeah. And I, I think with neuroplasticity, you actually can change the way you think, right? So right now, this negative thought, it's set up in neurons in my brain. And I've said it so many times, you know, what fires together, wires together. So what I'm doing is that that thought's still there. It's going through, you know, but I'm setting up another loop and I'm feeding that loop. I'm trying to give that loop the glucose and have the other feedback loop lose the glucose. So you, you actually can change what you think about but just being cognizant of what you're thinking about and not letting it bother you is the other thing so right. you can choose what you respond to just because something happens in your ego which isn't even you that's a level two skill being able ah. to choose the thought that you're going to run with and release the thought that's not supportive that yes. is the foundational skill of mindfulness and it is something that takes practice and awareness. And I'm certain that there are people on this planet who are not aware of their thinking themselves right. as separate from their thinking. And so one of the things that is incredibly challenging for 
I created a mindfulness course, One Minute Mindfulness. It's a single breath mindfulness course for physicians. You use it at work with a specific trigger, and it's been proven to to provide short and long-term stress relief and burnout prevention for doctors. And one of the things I've done is taught a whole bunch of people to meditate, at least taken them through a simple Vipassana breath awareness meditation. And before I do that, I always start with this. I say, okay, we're going to meditate. Clear your clear your lap, push yourself away from the desk. And I say, okay, stop, raise your hand. If when I said, we're going to meditate, you said to yourself, oh man, I'm no good at this. And I ask for a show of hands. And it's always at least half of the room. And I tell them, it's not that you're no good at meditation. You've been traumatized by a bad meditation teacher. And some of the most famous meditation teachers with the courses that you get on the internet are horrible at it. And here's how you can tell a bad meditation teacher. And I don't know why they often speak in an Indian accent, but what they say is, close your eyes and quiet your mind, which is a crazy thing to say because nobody can quiet their mind. You're going to close your eyes, you're going to get quiet, and thoughts and feelings are going to come in. And if you try and stop them, they're going to get louder and more frequent. You cannot quiet your mind. So we're going to meditate. And what I want you to do is close your eyes. If you wish, you don't have to. Focus your awareness on your breathing, wherever you notice it, in and out of your nose, up and down your throat, in and out of your belly. And as thoughts and feelings come up, if you notice you're distracted with your next out breath, go ahead and exhale and release that thought or feeling and come back to your breathing. That's it. Notice, release, return. Don't make any attempt to control your feelings or your thoughts. That same person who said, close your eyes and quiet your mind, knows that in Sanskrit, how do they describe the mind of a meditator in Sanskrit? It says, like a drunken monkey stung by a thousand scorpions. They know you can't quiet your mind. So, Uh, What we do then is when they come back up after 90 seconds of meditation, it's like, you guys are awesome. You're all great meditators. Congratulations. Did you notice any thoughts or feelings? Because that's it. Being able to notice a thought or a feeling implies separation from that thought or your feeling. That's the foundational skill, right? Right. Thinking about your thinking. And, you know, we all have these self, well, we, we all, we have self-limiting beliefs about meditation, but it's the easiest thing in the world to do. You, you can do it when you're walking, if you choose to. You can actually do it with a piece of food in your mouth. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't, don't need any equipment. And, you know, there are proven health benefits of it, right? Oh, of course. So if you're, if you're trying to eat well and sleep well and get some exercise, if you want to be a healthy person and you're not meditating yet, why? And there's actually a pretty good book called Meditation for Dummies. It's one of those big for dummies, yellow books. It's actually pretty good. But what I'll say is that meditation, when you are not somebody who's a regular person who meditates or not comfortable with it, is not easy. There's a huge barrier. I just gave you the first one, close your eyes and quiet your mind. I remember reading a story about Thich Nhat Hanh, who taught John Kabat-Zinn how to meditate. He does these silent meditation retreats, but at the silent meditation retreats, they still have an hour where you can talk to the guru. And somebody stood up, this is a recorded documented story that I heard. Somebody stood up and said, oh, Master Han, I'm sure when you close your eyes, you fall into the void. 
And all of a sudden, Tishnahan's body started rocking up and down, and people couldn't tell what was going on, but he was laughing. He was laughing. He said, oh, no, no, no. My mind is just like yours, drunken monkey stung by a thousand scorpions, right? Yeah. I'm just better at letting it go. Yeah, and I think to make it a little more accessible, you know, think about things that put you in the flow state. When you are in the flow state, you are just totally present. You are 100% there in the moment. That's meditating. And, and prayer, prayer is meditating. So there, there is a lot of ways that you can make this accessible in your life. You don't have to sit there on the, on the cushion in the middle with your feet crossed. And then if we take it even farther right now, what we're talking is noticing your thinking and being able to choose which thoughts you support and which thoughts you release. When we're talking about being hijacked, shame and guilt and things like that, we can actually go further because this has been true in my life and it's been something that was first in the Western tradition, it was first promulgated by Carl Jung back in the early 1900s, is that the voice of shame, the voice of guilt, the voice of perfectionism, because it was a piece of what got you to medical school, it was a source of your success as a younger person. The challenge is right now, it's still trying to communicate with you in the same way it did when you were a child by hijacking and saying loud things into your ears, it still is there as a, an ally, a protector, a teacher. What we need to do is upscale your relationship from the relationship you had as a child to a relationship that would be useful for you right now. And one of the ways that you do that is with Carl Jung's what's called active imagination journaling. You actually journal with that voice of shame. And one of the things you might say in some of your first journal, you know, you write what you want to say, and then you let your hand be controlled by the voice of shame. And if that's what it wants to be called and say, hey, you know, thanks so much for all your help to date. But right now it's not working. Is there some other way we could communicate? And you'll find that in many cases that will continue to be a very powerful inner protector for you. Yeah, the other way I kind of like to think about it is that, you know, th this was something that was protective for you as a, as a young person, but it no longer serves you. So if you were the well-resourced adult that you are today, these experiences you had as a child would not have stuck in your amygdala. You would have dealt with them, you'd have processed them. So what you can do is you can actually, it's called reparenting. You can go back and talk to that child as the well-resourced adult you are now, and you can say, hey, buddy, what's going on? Let's talk about this. Tell me what you're feeling. And it sounds stupid, Dyke, but visualizations helped me get rid of that voice. Sure. I literally was able to take these frozen, fractured thoughts and free them. And, and I don't suffer from this voice in my head that tells me I am bad anymore. I have not heard that critical inner voice for months now. And it's glorious. It, right it, on. Life-changing. I mean, like literally, because I, I always thought there was something wrong with me. I was never comfortable in my own skin. There was this buzzing, burningness. I always felt like I had to be somewhere else. And I just was not, it took me 48 years to realize what was wrong with me. And, and it was shame. And once I dealt with this wounded inner child, and it's a process, it keeps going on, but, but there is, there's a cure for this. There's a cure for this. Well, I remember my voice in my family was always is everything okay now so i'm the oldest 
grandchild, my grandmother, Gertrude, went off to college in the 1930s and wanted to be a doctor, came home a teacher. My mother went off to college in the 50s, wanted to be a doctor, came home a teacher. And I was the firstborn grandchild and a boy. So I was meant to, I believe, even though they never said it out loud, my father said they talked about it in the kitchen when they're doing dishes when grandma would visit. But it's like the plan was Dyke was going to be a doctor, but they never spoke about it. And in my family, I was set up to be the achiever, right? The time that I got attention was when I didn't get a 4-0. And so the voice in my head was always, here I've achieved, is everything okay now? Uh, I got into Mayo, is everything okay? It was always, is everything okay now? And I got to a point where I was about 48 years old, and I had just been divorced, burnt to the ground financially. This was back when I got certified as a coach and an imagery guide and stuff like that. And and I had this incredibly powerful guided imagery session with my coach. I remember being curled in the fetal position on the carpet in my bachelor pad, covered in my own snot. And I was I was having a conversation with some piece of something that said, hang on a second, that is everything okay now? That is not the right question. That's the question of a child. And I said, well, what is the right question? And the voice said, how is everything perfect right now? Love it. And my life, my life changed. That was the inflection point. My life changed from that point forward. Um, And now one of the things I teach is the reverse differential diagnosis. (laughs) What are all the bad things that could be happening to you right now that are not? Because you know what? Everything's really okay. Yeah. Well, and you you were focusing on what was good and what you're grateful to have in your life. And that's what brings joy. I mean, people think that if you're you're a joyful person, you become a grateful person. That's not true. If you're a grateful person, then you become a joyful person. So so that is what unlocks the ability just to have pleasure in the moment, Dyke, right? Just to enjoy what's there in front of you. Because it is pretty damn awesome sometimes and we don't recognize it, do we? Well, doctors are programmed to see what's going wrong. And not only that, to see what's going wrong and fear the consequences or the responsibility of missing out on it. It's like, I didn't make the diagnosis. I always tell this story. If you and I become really great friends and maybe we go on a vacation in New York City together, and if we're standing in the balcony above Grand Central Station, you and me being doctors, we'll stand on the rail and in about 15 seconds, one of us is going to point to the only person down below who's limping And then we're going to get in an argument, whether it's their hip or their knee. Okay, that's what doctors do. But right next to the person who's limping is a dad on his knees giving a rose to his daughter. And we completely miss that. (laughs) We completely miss it. We only see the dangerous things. You actually have to take your doctor hat off when you come home. We call it the boundary ritual. Take your doctor hat off when you come home and let go of that program. Because there's always always let's do this reverse differential diagnosis you know what differential diagnosis is i'm going to show you a spot on my skin you're going to tell me how many deadly diseases that could signify let's go reverse hey dyke it's syphilis i'm sorry to tell you you don't have syphilis syphilis. great i don't have (laughs) diphilobothrium latum what's something else you don't have love it um well geez let's stay with the stds right it's not herpes okay podagra i haven't got it Mm, elephantitis Uh, 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 we can keep going for weeks right yeah about all the things that are bad that are not happening to us 
So let me ask you this then, Dyke. It seems like you got pretty close to a rock bottom as well. And I mean, I, I certainly was well past a rock bottom. I mean, I this this voice was vicious. I mean, it used to swear at me. And and when it was well behaved, it was just a little bit critical whenever I did anything. Like no, nothing was ever good enough. But so does a physician have to reach rock bottom to recognize and improve their their relationship with shame? No. So and tell you, me, like, what do you, you see in physicians early? Well, and you were pretty much out there on the edge of the of the curve of the normal curve. You're a couple standard deviations out on the won't leave you alone no matter what spectrum of the voice, right? And again, what I'll tell you is that because we're not driven as hard in our training anymore as we used to before workout restrictions, and because there are wellness programs in many residencies that are run by psychologists and psychiatrists, because there are coaches like me and the hundreds of others that are out there that talk about feelings with doctors openly and honestly and in conversations that are that are confidential and, and have nothing to do with anybody that is their teacher or their faculty. I think a lot of this stuff is very much closer to the surface than it ever has been. However, humans are crisis-centered organisms. Typically, we only change when we have to. So even though you would hope that people wouldn't have to reach a crisis to get to a place where they are going to exercise their neuroplasticity and change things. People are people. We're human. Doctors are humans too. I mean, doctors have families that have alcoholism in them. Doctors have families with mental illness. There's all sorts of stuff that can happen to somebody as they mature through the medical education system and start to see patients on their own. That That is kind of the definition of rock bottom, right? Is that it's when staying the same is more painful than actually making the change. So, I, I mean, it gives me a lot of hope that that this is being talked about and, and we're getting better resourced than, than you and I were when we went through training. But still, this can really revolutionize your life. It can really make everything in your life better. And it's just a hard problem to have without a solution that an allopath can help you with, frankly, uh, osteopath too. Well, and, and let me say too that I just want to give you some take-home points and things you can do, like I promised at the beginning of this recording, right? Shame, guilt, fear, perfectionism, all the things that we've been talking about are normal in doctors. As a matter of fact, without them, you might not have performed in a way that would have gotten you to the point that you're a practicing physician or a person in medical school residency or fellowship. They have a dark side. They have a, a side that can make you uncomfortable and cause you to question yourself and your life, your skills, your confidence. And they also are powerful forces supporting you in your performance so far. If you're finding that are making you uncomfortable, they can be worked with to be a continued positive source in your life. And if it turns out that you're uncomfortable enough that you want to do something about it, I encourage you to grab somebody, a coach, a psychologist, somebody who's in your wellness program at your residency or in your organization, a good friend, and talk about the shame, talk about the guilt, bring it out into the open, because there's a whole bunch of different things that can be done, starting with mindfulness and mindful awareness and friendship to actually turn it from what seems like potentially a curse into a superpower. And that is the starting point, is listening to what you're thinking, right? Actually hearing what you're thinking, recognizing it, and 
you know, if you wouldn't talk to a friend the way that you're talking to yourself in this own inner critical voice, then, then think about really, why am I talking to myself like this? I would never say this to someone I love, but yet I say it to myself all the time. Yeah. And eliminate your double standard. Everybody take a deep breath. Just let it sink in a little bit. And if nothing else, my contact information is wherever you're listening or watching right now, this audio or video, give us a call. We've got six coaches. This is what we do. And like I said, I've walked this path and come out the other side. And it was because I was willing to actually dialogue directly with this particular voice in my head. And I can show you how to do that too. If you're, if you're somebody who it's okay to do that with. Yeah, you got to talk about burnout. You got to talk about shame. This is not going to get better if we don't talk about it. And if if this particular conversation has caused you to feel really, really upset or or uh, nervous or or scared, I'm also going to put wherever it is that you're watching or listening to me right now. I'm also going to put the National Suicide Prevention Hotline there for you. Either call a friend or call that number, and don't go to sleep on this if you're that upset by what's happened here today. Any last thoughts, Dr. Graham? No, um, I wish I would have found you earlier in my career, but... I wish I would have found me earlier in my career. (laughs) (laughs) It's the truth. It's the truth. But, you know, it's always a good time to have a better future, right? And all we got is now. This is all we have is this moment. But we have lots of power choosing what our future is like. And in fact, that is the gift of life, is that we can create the future that we want for ourselves. Amen to that. Amen to that. And just so you know, Dr. Graham is also a kick-ass financial advisor for physicians at phyphysician.com, physician.com. Thank you, Dr. David Graham, for our conversation here today. Everybody here, take a big breath. If you're bothered by shame and guilt, let's work on it, okay? If you want to call us, we're here. The numbers are on the page. And until I hear you, see you in the next Physicians on Purpose podcast. Keep breathing and have a great rest of your day.